Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening and welcome to another episode of That's Truth here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. I trust that your Tuesday has been a blessing thus far, and we hope that you can keep your radio dial tuned to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse for the next 90 minutes as we are here to answer your questions from a biblical worldview. I'm Nathan Owens, and sitting across the desk from me, as usual, is Pastor Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. Hi, good evening, Brother Nathan, and good evening to those who are listening to the program. Now, Pastor, right at the end of last week's episode... um, We had a question come in from Antigua, and the question is, Pastor Murphy, can you please explain Daniel chapter 9 and Nehemiah chapter 9? Well, let me attempt to um, answer those questions hurriedly because I'm not sure the person wants an exhaustive study of Daniel chapter 9. That would require almost an entire program in itself. But uh, just in the essence of... um, Daniel chapter 9. It has to do with Daniel um, confessing his sin for Israel. And the reason why this happens is because in Daniel chapter 9, he's read the account in Jeremiah, where Jeremiah had prophesied that the captivity of Israel would last for 70 years, and after 70 years, Israel would return to the promised land. And Daniel realizes that that time is coming to an end. And therefore, he anticipates that God is going to intervene and um, restore his people. So he began the process of prayer and intercession. And Daniel has in his mind these 70 years that uh, Jeremiah had prophesied. And then in answer to his prayer, um, uh, Gabriel uh, comes and answers Daniel's prayer. And uh, quite frankly... Uh, he tells Daniel that, you know, uh, he is aware that he has this mental framework of 70 years, and then he gives a prophecy about what is called 77s. Um, A lot of people have been misled because the word has 70 weeks in this passage. Uh, and I don't have the um, my study on it right here, but I can suggest to anyone who has a concordance to go into the scriptures and check up that expression, you find that it has to do with 77s. It's not 70 weeks. It's 77. They're two, day, two different words in the, in the Hebrew language, but they're so similar, and therefore they're translated weeks. And that's the problem uh, that people have when they come to 70 weeks. It really is 77s. And what it's referring to really is 77 of years, which is 490 years, that, uh, is a, uh, that the Lord says that will involve the nation of Israel. And then he gives details 
on what that uh, uh, 77 of the 490 years are about. And if you look at verse um, uh, verse 25, uh, could you read that, Brother Nathan? Yeah, Daniel, uh, Daniel chapter 9, and get this computer software to cooperate, and verse number? Verse number 25. Verse number 25. Apologize for the slowness here. All right, Daniel 9.25 says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even the troublous time, in troublous times. Right. Uh, it's now beginning to explain uh, how this particular 70 weeks are going to be uh, broken down. And substantially, what it tells you here in this particular passage is that there are going to be t uh, two sections in involved in this uh, um, 70 weeks. Uh, there's reference to, uh, look at verse number 25, 62 weeks, and then there's also reference to seven, uh, seven of those weeks. So you've got uh, seven sevens, which is 49, and then you've got 62, which should be uh, 483 altogether. Uh, the city is going to be rebuilt uh, within the 49 years, and then following that 49 years, going up to the 69th week, the Messiah is going to be cut off. Uh, that's a prophetic reference to the fact that the Jews could have known when the Messiah would be crucified because they could have checked from the time the temple was rebuilt, which was rebuilt, started when the, the commandment to rebuild the temple was in 445. They had 45 years, 49 years, and then after that, 62, which would bring it up to um, um, just, uh, oh, let me see, uh, just short of seven weeks. Uh, my mind is, is not there because I'm not looking at the particular details. But at the end of these 62 and 49 and uh, seven weeks, uh, 69 of those weeks, the Messiah is going to be cut off. And uh, the Jews could have known from 445, and then they could have calculated the other 62 weeks. They would have known that the Messiah would be cut off in 30 AD, uh, when, uh, when the Bible and uh, when we know our Lord was crucified. Uh, so there was a sign uh, indication in the book of Daniel that they could have had an approximate idea when the Messiah would be cut off. The Messiah would be cut off. They may not have known all the details of, of how it would be done, but at least the Messiah would be cut off at a particular time was given. Uh, what is concerned about this prophecy that there's a gap between the 69th week and the 70th week. There's still one more se uh, seven weeks or one year uh, one seven years that is still due in, in terms of the, the Jewish nation. Remember, this prophecy relates to the people of Daniel and the city of Daniel, and it has nothing to do with the Gentiles. This is a prophecy relating to Daniel. Daniel is praying because he has 70 years that uh, Jeremiah has prophesied that the, um, the, the captivity will end and they'll return. But while he's praying, the Lord sent uh, Gabriel to tell him, listen, uh, you're talking about 70, but it's 77s, basically, before this whole program for this one is going to be complete. And he then gives those details about the, when the, uh, the temple will be start rebuilding in 445, the commandment. It will take 49 years, and then it will lead to another 62, and then the Messiah will be cut off. After that, there's a gap where there's another seven years to come. And that's where, uh, if you look at verse... Um, uh, look at verse, read verse 26. 
Daniel 9.26 says, And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince shall come, and shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. Then read verse 27. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease, and for the overspreading of abominations he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation, and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. Yeah. So you would have six and nine weeks fulfilled with the building of the temple, the Messiah's death. Then there's a hiatus or gap between the 69th and the 70th week. But you notice in, in verse 27, there's going to be uh, one who's going to come, and we know who he's going to be, the prince that will destroy the city is to come. So whoever is to come is coming out of the, the, the nation that destroyed Jerusalem, which is, occurred in 70 AD. This same one that destroyed the city, uh, his, he's coming out of that people. The Bible talks about that. And he's going to enter into a covenant, which is called the what we call the seven-year tribulation period. So what he does, he signed a peace pact with Israel to protect Israel for seven years. Israel, of course, will go into the peace pact. Not all of them, because you'll find out later in the same chapter and later that there's many that will go into this peace pact, peace back with the Antichrist. But in the midst of that um, peace pact, he removed the sacrifice and he sets up what is called the desolation of abomination, which is uh, the image of the beast set up in the temple of God. Second Thessalonians talk about in chapter number two. And uh, so this is what it's talking about. It's talking about God's plan for Israel and what that plan entailed. It entailed not only the people returning, but the temple will be built. But it also entailed the fact that the Messiah was going to come, the Messiah was going to be cut off. And then we have the, he's now cut off, Israel is cut off according to Genesis, uh, Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. Uh, we Gentiles have been grafted in because Israel has been set aside. And in chapter 11, Paul says God is going to regraft Israel into his program. So when the church is taken out and raptured, he now begins to deal with Israel. And this seven years is the period of time that God takes up Israel and begins to discipline Israel. And that's where the Antichrist will come. The peace pact will be signed with the Antichrist. And um, the Lord is going to return. And eventually he's going to uh, set up his millennial kingdom. So Daniel chapter 9 really gives you the entire spectrum of prophecy in relation to Israel. Uh, it has nothing to do with the Gentiles, nothing to do with the church. And that's where there's a gap between um, the 69th week and the 70th week. Uh, and that is what you call the age of grace that was not revealed in the Old Testament. And that's where we are right that's now. That's where we are right now. But we're quickly coming to a close because uh, the Bible prophesied that Jerusalem be, be trodden underfoot until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Now we know that for the first time, Israel now has control of Jerusalem. Uh, it's in our generation that Israel now has uh, legal control of Jerusalem. Of course, the person who, who did that was Trump. He, uh, he made Jerusalem the capital of Israel. That is a very significant prophecy that the Jerusalem will be under the control of Gentiles until the time of the end. So we're very, very close to midnight because that prophecy has already been fulfilled. Uh, so we just got to wait to see uh, how much longer this is going to happen. Remember, before the tribulation begins, the church has to be raptured. So, And the rapture is imminent. It can occur at any time. So uh, Daniel chapter 9 basically is the panoramic survey of 
what God's plan is for Israel and how he fits into the program, and that he's not finished with Israel. He still has a seven-year period to deal with them during the tribulation period. And by the way, this dovetails into the book of uh, Revelation. You cannot understand Revelation until you understand Daniel. Daniel is the key to prophetic scriptures. If you don't understand Daniel, you will never understand the book of Revelation. And you'll find that in the book of Revelation, it talks about uh, 1260 uh, days and a time and half a time and a time. Uh, All of that is uh, three and a half years and uh, three and a half years. It's emphasized in different ways. And um, so the... Daniel 9 basically has to do with a panoramic survey of God's uh, movement with Israel and how he's going to complete his program with Israel. Now, when you come to Nehemiah, quickly. Before you jump in, I'm curious. uh, Do we have any reason to believe that the crucifixion did not catch anyone off guard? They had these prophecies from the book of Daniel. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I think, Nathan, is this. Remember that Christ came as the Messiah. The problem with the Jews is the same problem they have today. They had a preconceived motion of what the Messiah would be. The Messiah would be one that would come, set up his kingdom, uh, destroy the the foreign powers that were controlling Israel. That is their conception because the Bible presents the Messiah as a king. But there's another side to the Messiah that they didn't see because uh, Isaiah 53 says the Messiah is going to die, come as a lamb. They didn't see that part of it. It's like... You know, it's like what you want to see, you just seem to be oblivious to what really is there. And that was the problem with Israel. They're looking for a lion of Judah to come who would rule. But they didn't understand that before the lion comes, he comes as a lamb to be slain for the sins of the whole world. But do you think there were some that understood that he was going to die, that took that literally? Well, if you read the, the apostles, even, even they, even when the Messiah said he was going to die again and again, they just was so stubborn because mm. in their conception, how can the Messiah die? The Messiah is supposed to rule. He's supposed to deliver us from our enemies. Mm. If you read the um, the prophetic word of the um, the prophet when they took up Jesus, uh, I forgot his name, quite fr- frankly, in the book of uh, Luke chapter 2. Uh, this one is for the uh, downfall and the rising, and that he will take the throne of David. All of this is in prayer and that he's saying about this one that would come. So they're looking at it from the perspective that this is the Jewish mindset. And I think that's where they missed the whole, the whole idea. Even today, they find it difficult to believe that a Messiah would suffer under Roman power and be so ignominiously crucified and disgraced and not display his power. In other words, Christ is seen as a failure as opposed to be the Savior. And that goes back. But we who understand the prophetic word that from the very beginning, Genesis chapter 3, the proto-evangelion, the first promise, that the seed of the woman would bruise the serpent head, but the serpent would do what? Bruise his heel. Now, that's a a prophecy that started in Genesis chapter 3. When was the the, the Messiah's heel uh, bruised? At the crucifixion. Everybody knows by now that when the nails are put into the thing, it went through right through the heel. That was a prophecy that the Messiah would be crucified. But of course, you're talking about the beginning of history almost. How how would people ever grasp to understand that? But then you go through the book of Leviticus, and you see the idea that sacrifice for atonement, sacrifice for atonement. You've got all these sacrifices. Uh, you go to the Day of Atonement, and you've got the scapegoat, you've got the two goats. One is slain, and one is let loose. One, one dies for sin, and one carries away the sin. Again, that's the two the Messiah will play. But that is all done um, 
pictorially in the Old Testament, pointing towards the one that would come. But uh, again, when you have this idea of what you want, and you're reading the Bible from your particular angle of looking at rather than take the whole perspective, I think that's where they missed the whole thing about the Messiah. And today, as I said before, you still got a, a lot of Jews are turning to Christ individually. But as a nation, they are still looking for the Messiah to come. The Messiah, that's why the Bible said, they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will weep with me as a woman in birth pains because they'll finally realize I can't believe this the Messiah actually came and we missed the boat but that is going that's when the eyes will be finally opened and at that time of course our Lord comes back and he deals with them purges the nation of Israel uh, deals with the Gentile nations and then sets up his millennial kingdom and, and reigns on the throne of David every single prophecy, pro promise that God made Every single prophecy that God has to be fulfilled. And one must sit on the throne of David who will reign forever. And that cannot be a man, that has to be God. You were mentioning Nehemiah chapter 9. Yeah, Nehemiah chapter 9 is another reference that the person asked that we look at. And again, Nehemiah chapter 9 is a, 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 um, is a chapter where um, they're confessing, quite frankly, their sins before God. And they are going to make a new covenant with God at the end of Nehemiah. But what it does, basically, is a prayer that traces God's entire dealings with Israel, how he brought them out of um, Egypt, how he led them through the wilderness, how they rebelled. And in that prayer, they keep calling to the fact that in every stage that God worked, they rebelled, they rebelled, they rebelled, they rebelled. So it's, a, it's really a prayer of confession of the sins of the people. And I think what the person might have wanted to um, get across, and I I'm suspect, I'm suspect this, I can only speculate, but I think it had to do with the emphasis being placed on the law, that they didn't obey the law, and because they didn't obey the law, all these things came upon them. But again, that is exactly correct, because they were under the covenant of law. And the covenant of law was this. Uh, the people said, all that the Lord tell us we will do. You know that that is you. You have signed a piece, a, a pact with him that you are going to live according to the law. So if you want God to deal with you on the basis of law, and you don't obey law, you meet God's severity and God's judgment. So I suspect that's what the person was trying to. I suspect. I'm not too sure, but I think that's the angle that they probably were trying to emphasize the idea of the 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 dominance of the law. And we don't dispute there was a dominance of the law, but that was an old covenant that God dealt with with Israel. Uh, and then at the end of the, the prayer because of all that the chastening that God has done and now God has brought them back into the promised land uh, the people are saying now we're going to make a new covenant with you so begin a new relationship with, with God on the basis of a new covenant and part of that new covenant in involves putting away the strange women and the strange foreign God, uh, women that they had married to which was causing them to commit uh, um, uh, idolatry that God had warned them not to do so it's really a prayer of confession and restoration and renewing of a covenant with God but it's also a prayer that uh, traces God's goodness and God's severity and Israel's rebellion against everything that God does and uh, so it's just one of those prayers uh, just like Daniel is confessing his sin and it's a prayer of confession as well and a prayer of rest restoration to a new covenant you're listening to That's Truth on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you have a question, we would love for you to ask it. You can send it via WhatsApp or text message to 268-782-1454. 
Or you can call and be put live on the air by calling 1-268-462-7420. Yeah, what I would like to do next week when I start the program, I want to do a more a thorough analysis of Daniel 9 and Nehemiah to break down the prayer stuff and just go through it section by section. It's just I got it this evening and I didn't have time to go through it, but I want to do that to do a more thorough job. I made a note of that and we will uh, start out next week's episode, Lord willing, with that. Pastor, a WhatsApp question that has come in from Antigua. Is it right for a Christian to work on Sunday? That's a question that I have been asked many times. I think it depends. Uh, When I say that, there are some jobs that and some careers that necessitate working. Take a, a doctor. He didn't go into uh, his profession because he wanted to work on Sunday. But he may be attached to a hospital, and it might require that he uh, be there. Take a fireman. I mean, if everybody uh, desists from being uh, working on Saturday, what happened is there's a fire. So I think there, there I think legitimate um, reasons for not uh, uh, being in church on Sunday, I think that is quite legitimate. Uh, but I would say this. I do think that Christians should take that into consideration when they are looking at careers. I, I don't say I don't think mean that you shouldn't have Christian doctors. Should have Christian. Uh, you have Christians in every year, as far as I'm concerned. But it is something to be borne in mind that it will affect some Sundays. If your conscience bothers you, this is an area I think where people have Christian freedom and liberty, so that choice should be made. But I, I know that there are people who don't have to be at work on Sunday. But maybe because they're paid tw- uh, double time on Sunday, uh, they would still uh, go in that direction. I think that uh, that would be something that a Christian should try to desist from. But um, there's nothing in the Bible that condemns anybody from uh, working on Sunday. Remember, we, we don't, you know, under the Old Testament economy, one particular day was set aside. But uh, under the Christian dispensation, every day is a holy day. To be very honest, we live every single day for the Lord. It's just that to honor His resurrection, uh, we worship on, on Sunday as a particular day. So let's not get bogged down into a legalistic system that create unnecessary guilt and burdens on people uh, because they find themselves in a situation where they might have to work uh, on Sundays. So am I understanding you correctly that in some cases for some people it may be a sin and in some cases for other people it would be something that uh, would not be a sin in the eyes of God? I, I'm not too sure I like the word sin, Okay, right, uh, as far as that is concerned because, uh, you know, as I said before, um, Whatever day you worship on, the Bible says, let your man be fully persuaded in his mind. And and, and listen, is it is it not possible for a person to be at work and still worshiping God in yeah. his mind? In other words, if I'm not there for whatever reason, I could be doing my job and worshiping God. You know, so I don't think we ought to become... The problem with people is that we try to put everything in a box. We want something to be very, very rigid, and we forget that the Bible talks about freedom. We should have freedom and liberty in these kind of things. However, if a man's conscience really, really smites him in regard to that thing, whatever our conscience uh, smites us and makes us burden that we are wrong, it is wrong, and it's sin for us to go against our conscience. The Bible says God is greater than our conscience. But I think we need to get away from the, the idea of this um, legalistic imposition on, on Christianity when uh, we are no longer on the legal system of law. We are under, under grace. Pastor, what do you think of this thought? You can pray all you want, but eventually David had to pick up a stone and act against Goliath. 
Well, it, it is. It's, yeah, I don't. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, we got to understand that even in Nehemiah, the people were praying and they were carrying a sword as well. They were building, a, carrying a sword, etc. Uh, what that is probably saying that there are some things that even though we pray for, it requires us to do some action. What's the use of I praying, asking God for a job? But I just lazy around in the house. I never write any letters. I never beat some tar to go from house to house up, uh, business to business to see if there's any opportunities. I never prepare myself by education and get a new skill, which is marketable. I just sit home every single day, and I just said, God, give me a job. That is pure, pure uh, idleness, and it doesn't show industry. Uh, I think we, we, we pray to God, we look to God, but we do whatever our part is in this whole matter. And, of course, if you're going to get a job, you have to be qualified for the job. You have to be prepared for the job. You need to search for a job, get in the job market, get your um, VTA or whatever it is, and, and get it out there in the public to the different business places to let know who's available. And if not, you what you do, you, you try to do, do something on your own. Meanwhile, you keep at, you know, the other thing, Nathan, along that same line, I, you, I got people all the time who say they don't like the job, they want to leave the job. I said, that's stupid. You keep your job until you get what you want, but you don't surrender job because you just don't like the job. So you're going to put your family in jeopardy, put strain upon your parents or your family that they're now going to meet your needs. When you are a person that uh, at, at that age, you should be on your own, independent. Uh, no, if you want, you don't like what you're doing, there's nothing wrong in start preparing for something else to do. But meanwhile, you hold on to what you've got until the Lord leads and opens another door for you. We've got to be wise and not uh, silly and stupid in these in these different areas of life. You know, common sense uh, today is, 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 is very scarce, but it's something that God has given to us. And let's use our minds and let's, let's use our reason and not just hide behind uh, some pretense of spirituality that is just vague and bogus. You're listening to That's Truth on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. The time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 7.57. We still have 60 minutes in this particular episode of That's Truth, and we would love for you to call in with your question. You can put live, be put live on the air by calling one 268 7420 or you can WhatsApp or text your question to the following number. One two six eight seven eight two one four five four. Again, the WhatsApp or text number is two six eight seven eight two fourteen fifty four. You can go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page. Click on the Facebook Live video feed, and you can listen to the program, watch the program behind the scenes, and comment right there on your device your question, and it'll get passed along to Pastor Murphy in a timely manner. No matter how you are joining us, we are glad you are participating in the program tonight. 1160 AM, 92.3 FM, and online at www.radiolighthouse.org. We are glad that you are taking the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse with you everywhere that you go. Pastor, for the last two weeks, I think it's just been two weeks, we've been discussing the topic of prayer, and you have covered a broad spectrum of information. Can For the listener who has just tuned in for the first time tonight, can you give us just a very brief overview of some of the highlights or some of the things you've discussed? Well, I think what we did basically is to try to define prayer. 
And then what we did, we went into the Old and New Testament, and we looked for words that are used in the Bible to speak of prayer. We discovered there are three in the Old Testament and seven in the New Testament. Uh, then we summarize uh, what prayer is about, and uh, we also look at the ramifications that we can draw from the fact that God asks us to prayer, and what that tells us about Him, and about His character and His nature. Um, we went from there, and we gave some tidbits on some practical things about how to go about uh, your your prayer life. The second um, time that we discussed this whole topic of prayer. We really b- dealt with what is called the protocol in prayer. How, what, is, what, what are the guidelines that God has given us to pray? We looked at what's the role of the Trinity in prayer, especially the Father, uh, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we, we summed up it all by saying that the entire Trinity is involved in prayer. Prayer must be addressed to God the Father. That is very, very clear. That's the protocol. It must be addressed in the name of His Son, the Lord Jesus, and through the help of the Holy Spirit, through His assistance. And what that really means is that when we're about to pray, we should be very, very conscious that we may not know how to pray in respect to God's will. When you read Romans chapter 8, you discover that the Holy Spirit prays for, pray for us with groanings and utterings that cannot be mentioned in regards to God's will because he knows the mind of God and that's where when we're praying we should ask the Spirit of God to guide us as we pray that when we're praying we're praying this within the will of God so we must not neglect the Father we must not neglect the Son and we must not neglect the the, the Spirit they're all three actively involved the thing that we pointed out uh, as well Nathan is that uh, there's no prayer that's ever answered that's not addressed to God the Father all prayers that, that seek and addressed to any other being or entity will never be answered. So prayer to a priest or prayer to a saint or prayer to an angel or prayer to Mary, all of these are prayers that never get beyond the ceiling. Prayer must be addressed only to God and to God only in the name of Jesus Christ and with the help of the Holy Spirit. How would would you respond to the listener who says, but I have prayed to Mary my whole life and I have seen things that I requested of Mary come to pass? The simple answer to that, you ask any Muslim, you ask any Hindu to tell you the same thing, see? Uh, That's not a basis to to do that. All I'm saying to you is that that might be prayer. And uh, let, let me ask a question. Do you think uh, the devil hears our prayers? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you're praying aloud, so can he not answer your prayer to make you think that God is answering your prayer? Of course he can. Wow, that's... that's, uh, No, I mean, if if you were the devil, and you wanted to mislead people, to be very honest with you, and you can get people praying to a saint or praying to a woman or praying to a false god, and you can can get that answer, uh, answer, would you not do it? Of course, it's a whole act of deception. Look, we're dealing with truth. We're not dealing here with speculation or what the the what uh, how the church interprets the the, the scriptures. We are dealing with what Christ has told us exactly how to pray, and and uh, that's the protocol. And only God has a right to lay down the protocol of how prayer would be answered and how we should go about that. So, in spite of all the f- the false claims that are made. There is no prayer that God answers that has not been addressed to the Father in the name of Jesus with the help of the Holy Spirit. Uh, That is fundamentally what the Bible teaches on this matter. As we push into new territory on the topic of prayer tonight, Pastor, from personal experience and also from the biblical teaching, we know that God answers prayer. 
But I'm sure there are those that are listening that are discouraged even this evening as they're listening to this episode of That's Truth about the failure of their prayers. So how do you, from a biblical perspective, biblical worldview, explain unanswered prayer? And what would you say are the hindrances to our prayers? Well, Nathan, you, you know, we, we said it uh, last time that God answers prayer, all prayers, in four different ways. Uh, he responds favorably with yes. Uh, he rejects the request with no. Uh, he might repress the answer by saying wait a while. And the other thing is he renders sufficient grace if he's not going to answer the way you want to answer. Whatever you want relief from, he gives you the grace to bear that. So the, 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 he does answer all prayer. But we all recognize as well that there are prayers that are, are, are not answered because there are certain things that prevent God from answering those prayers. And as you search the scriptures, uh, you discover that the Bible tells us that there are certain things that will hinder God answering our prayer. And I'm, if I'm speaking to the person who has been praying but not getting the answers, and you've been doing it for a long time, and maybe you've, you've quitted praying because you're not getting any kind of biblical response, I would ask you to thoughtfully consider uh, what God said in His Word that hinders prayer, and ask yourself, uh, could this be the reason why I'm praying and God is not answering? Um, look at James chapter 4 and verse 3. We have a very good reason there why, why God doesn't answer prayer. James 4 and verse 3 says, Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lust. And that's the King James uh, another translation says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Yeah. So the first thing that is very clear in that passage, you're praying with an uh, what they call an, unho- an unholy motive. Your motive is wrong. You're, you're, you're praying for something that uh, is selfish. Um, you're praying for something that, uh, that ultimately does not center around God's will or God's purpose. And uh, all prayers should be prayed to God in respect, in the sphere of God's will. That's why the Holy Spirit is so important. You can't read Romans chapter 8 without seeing that central to prayer is this whole matter of God's will. As a matter of fact, even in the what we call the Lord's Prayer, which I hope we get to look at, uh, he says, Thy will be done. Uh, as we as we begin the prayer, so it's about God's will. Here is a prayer, and uh, James is saying you're praying, you're asking amiss, because what you want is for your desires, for your own selfish lust, and because of that, uh, God is not going to respond to your prayer. Look, there are people who are praying for the conversion of a relative, but it has nothing to do with God's will. Maybe a, a woman has a husband who is a drunkard, or a husband who doesn't supply the needs of, of, of the home. And her main reason for wanting God to intervene in that person's life it has not to do with, with God's will. She's just hoping that he would get sober and start to perform his roles, uh, his responsibility. You've got people, you want revival in the church. Why do you want revival? Well, we want a church to grow larger. We want larger incomes. We want larger. It, it's not about God being glorified. The motive is all wrong. People want the filling of the Holy Spirit. Well, you want the filling of the Holy Spirit? Well, I want to speak in tongues so I can display pyrotechnics and get people's attention upon me. You know, um, all of these uh, we gonna understand. If our motive is wrong in prayer and it's selfish in prayer, uh, don't be surprised that God doesn't answer our prayer. So that is one of the things that that James explains to us as an unholy motive. Also, look at Isaiah fifty nine verse one and two. You see another reason why God doesn't answer prayer. Isaiah 
59, verses 1 and 2 say, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. So that he would not hear. So here's Israel puzzled. <laughs> we're beseeching you, we're asking you, but yet we're not getting a response. And the prophet comes on the line and said, the problem is not with God, the problem is with you. It's not that God can't hear you, or God's hand is not so powerful, he can't reach down and help you, but your iniquities and your sins have created this divide, this separation between you and God, so that God will not hear you. So it may be what I call here, unconfessed sin that it may be a sin of the past that we have not confessed, or it may be a sin of the present that we're cherishing, but sin in our lives that it's held deliberately that we're doing, and we're knowing we're doing it, and yet we're coming to God to ask in God's favor and God's uh, blessing. Uh, God said, no, 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 no. You know, I can't, I can't bless you and respond to you when you actually know what you're doing is wrong and evil and sinful. Uh, I was reading about our Atari. He said there was a time in his life when there was something that used to bother him. And uh, he realized he was praying, he was not getting anywhere. And the Lord convicted him about the whole matter. So he went to God and said, uh, started praying to God, said, God, you know, if this thing is wrong, uh, I want you to forgive me. And, and he still didn't get any prayer. But when he faced the fact, God, this thing is wrong, I confess it, I forsake it. He said that was the breakthrough he got. And he emphasized the fact that there are things in our life that we may know is sinful, but we continue to do them, yet we want God to bless us. So not only the matter of an, uh, having an unholy motive, but if we have unconfessed, un, known unconfessing, uh, now God may at times be gracious and bypass that, but we are warned here that this kind of, of unconfessing can be a hindrance to our prayer and God will, may not answer our prayer. But in the day and age that we live, there's so much emphasis on God being a loving God. How would you respond to the person who says, Pastor, God is a loving God. He wants to answer my prayer and he will answer my prayer whether I have sin in my life or not. Well, I, you can't help people uh, from being self-deceived. All I would say to people, the, the, the regulatory characteristic of God is His holiness. That's the first thing that's emphasized in the Bible is holiness. And, and I think it's very significant. He talks about His holiness before He talks about His love. In the Old Testament, His holiness is emphasized. He's seen as light, basically. In the New Testament, He's seen as love. There are two sides to God. But if we had have to emphasize the love aspect without emphasizing the holy, we can take advantage. And I think that's what's happened today. The church has done a great disservice to people in this world by overemphasizing the love of God at the expense of His holiness. God is love, but God's love is holy love, right? It's not uh, childish love or emotional love uh, or historical, historical love. It is holy love. And uh, we got to understand that uh, the key thing about God is His holiness. And, and uh, when we come to God, uh, that holy aspect, uh, it's vitally important. This is why, uh, uh, Nathan, if you look at Psalm 139 and verse 23 and verse 24. Psalm 139, verse 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me. 
and lead me in the way everlasting. Yeah. You notice that David is praying, and uh, as you come to God, he knows that there are things that might be hidden in his life, uh, and he wants God to do a thorough uh, catharsis in his life, and he's asking God to search him out. And notice that he said, uh, search, search, he has to search my heart, basically, and then he asked God to search my thoughts. And then he says, if there be any wicked, wicked ways. So both in his heart, his emotions, and his thoughts, and his mind, and in his actions, which is his ways. He's asking God to show me if there's anything wrong, the kind of emotions I've got, the kind of uh, affection I've got. What about my thoughts, Lord? Are, they, are there things in my thoughts that are wrong? And then what about my, my ways, the, 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 my behavior, my acts? He wants that those three main parts of him to be searched by God so that God might bring attention because David is conscious. Remember he said, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. He's aware of that because David had been through a situation where he had committed adultery, he had committed murder, and he found that heaven was not responding to him. And uh, and, and then we have his confession in, in, in Psalm chapter 51. Read that psalm. It's a, it's, it's a psalm of brokenness where he's confessing before God. He went to the point said, Lord, restore to me my joy. Take not your whole Holy Spirit. He feels so much guilt. He thinks that God has abandoned him, and then he finds relief with his confession, and he's restored. But so we got to be conscious that if our prayers are not answered, it not only may be we have an unholy motive, but we may have unconfessed in our lives. It's like you offending your parent, and you want the relationship restored, and you are very conscious that you have done real wrong. But and you know there's a strain there. Now they're still in the home, you're still in the house, you're still talking. But even when you're talking, you're aware that there's this barrier, there's this 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 uh this this um this um static basically. And it daunted you, quite frankly, that you know if I want this thing restored, I gotta confess. I gotta come and say I'm sorry, whatever it is. Same thing with a husband and a wife. Uh, you know, there are times when you're still in the same house. Just she's still cooking, still washing the clothes, she's still giving you these pleasantries. But you know, deep down, there's something that is strained. And the only way to deal with that is to say, "Hun, I was wrong. I said the wrong thing. I hurt you. Maybe I spoke too hard. I should have done this. Whatever it is." So it is never restored until there is a confession. Now, if on a human level that is necessary, imagine we're dealing with a holy God. How, therefore, can we entertain uh, evil emotions, evil thoughts, and evil ways, and rush into God's kingdom without preparing ourselves uh, by confessing our sins before Him? So I think, uh, let me give you another one, Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 3. Ezekiel 14 and verse 3 says, Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their heart and put the stumbling block of their iniquity before their face. Should I inquire of at all by them? Yeah. Here is a, a point, another point, what I call on top of idols in your life, uh, what is called the idols in the heart. And remember that uh, we sometimes make the mistake of associating idolatry with a person bowing before a statue, uh, some little effigy that they carry, and they may be put on their uh, vanity or something, and uh, maybe a picture of somebody that they 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 pray to every night for the picture over the you know. We consider that, but we forget they're also idols of the heart. And remember, the idol is anything or anyone that is more important to you at some that stage in your life. Whatever takes precedent in your life at that stage, that becomes an idol. Uh, God um, must be given priority and preeminence in our life. 
and God must be the supreme object of our affection. When something displaces that, it becomes an idol. Uh, and when you put it on that level, it takes an idol beyond the dimension of maybe something just merely physical that people, it could be a job. Can working at church become an idol? Of course, of course. As a matter of fact, uh, I've often said this, that I think that some of the situations where a lot of husbands sometimes are not saved is because the wife is married to the church. She's always on church on time. She's always helping in church. Uh, she doesn't, um, even when she leaves on mornings, Sunday mornings, she doesn't think of his breakfast. She doesn't think of uh, even lunch. Church is more important than her. So she's married to the church. Her husband, who is not unsaved, who is unsaved, uh, that begins to affect. What if when he says to her, honey, let's let's stay home for one Sunday, just stay home one Sunday, let's just sit on top. No, I can't do that because you know I got to be in church. I think that's a massive mistake. So I think it's possible that even in the church, the church can become an idol. A relationship also. Uh, can become an idol in a person's life. I've seen uh, good Christian young ladies, good Christian young men who have uh, gotten off track and become detoured and sometimes even made shipwreck because they entered a relationship that was not right, was not good, and was not proper. And they were willing to sacrifice uh, their relationship with God and other believers in order to, to, to establish a relationship with that person. And the long-term result of that often is that they make shipwreck of their lives. A philosophy and ideology can be an idol. Rather than follow biblical truth, you are so wrapped up with this ideology, whether it be communism or uh, this theory that America got now, what is called it, the, uh, that's being taught in the schools, basically, that is total rubbish, quite frankly, and uh, uh, goes against the grain of biblical principle that every man is made in the image of God. And you, you judge a man not by his skin or his color, uh, you, you judge him by his character. So, uh, but you can be so trapped with an ideology that it it, it trumps basically everything that the Bible teaches. Uh, ambition can become an idol. Uh, your bank account can become an idol. A person can become an idol. A child can become an idol. A friend can become an idol. A husband can become an idol. That's why they talk the idols in your heart, things that we don't see, that we don't know, that's controlling our, our minds and controlling the decisions we make, that takes precedence over God. And the Lord says, should I be inquired of people like this? who's supposed to be worshipping, but yet they've got these idols in their heart. So on top of idols uh, is another uh, reason why prayer is not answered. Uh, let me mention another one. Look at Proverbs chapter 21, verse 13. Proverbs 21, 13. Whoso stoppeth his ears at the cry of the poor, he also shall cry himself, but shall not be heard. I call it a, a compassionate heart. Uh, you know, the, the Bible says that God has decided to be the father of the widows and the orphans. Uh, and here he is he's saying, quite frankly, a person who sees the needy and is in a position to help the needy and turns its heart away from the needy because of his stinginess and lack of generosity, the Bible says the Lord will not hear. Read it again, please, because that people may not be aware that there's such a verse in the Bible. Whoso stoppeth his ears at the cry of the poor, he also shall cry himself, but shall not be heard. Yeah, so we have to be generous, we have to be compassionate, and where there is legitimate needs and we are brought into contact with those legitimate needs, and there's really need for some kind of help. We ought not to be so stingy 
and that we are 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 are, are, fi- are fist are folded and and squeezed and uh, our, our books are zipped up and we don't want to respond an interesting verse that it's found look at first john chapter 3 verse 22 first john 3 and verse 22 and whatsoever we ask we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And read verse 23 as well. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. No, it's all compassion, but if you want to read the context of that, read from verse 16 and see the context of where this passage is found. Verse 16. Verse 16. Hereby perceive we that we the love of God because he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren but whoso hath this world's good and seeth his brother have need and shutteth up his bowels of compassion for him from him how dwelleth the love of God in him my little children let us not love in word neither in tongue but in deed and in truth And hereby we know that we are of truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then have we confidence toward God. And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. Do you notice that verse 16 and it's sandwiched between the word love? Yeah. And you notice what kind of love it is, not just in word, but Indeed. in deed. It has to do with being compassionate, right? So uh, again, quite frankly, we have what we ask of him if we obey his command. What's his commandment to love? But not just love in word, you love in deed. So here is the, the element of, the, in the context, is dealing with being compassionate. As, uh, and if we don't, the basis of uh, uh, we don't have a compassionate heart, uh, um, God warns us that it might lead uh, to him not showing, uh, answering our prayer. You know, uh, you've probably read about the life of George Mueller. Uh, George Mueller took care of over 2,000 orphans. He never once solicited funds or money from anybody. But yet, uh, he never once, there's not a single day that those kids went without three meals a day. Sometimes even the very very day when he thought the Lord wouldn't come through. And a lot of funds came through his hand. And you know why? Because he was generous. He wasn't stingy. And uh, and one of the things that uh, if we want God to to answer our prayer, be generous to us and answer our prayer, we have to learn the element of compassion. One other verse, Philippians chapter 4 and, and verse number 19. But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Yeah, a lot of people quote that, but they never look at the context. Look at the context. Look at verse number 10 to 14. Philippians 4 verse 10 says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein ye also carefully, but ye lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased, 
and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Notwithstanding, ye have well done that ye did communicate with my affliction. You want me to yeah, read? Yeah, okay. uh, now ye Philippians, know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. For even in Thessalonica ye sent once and again unto my necessity, not because I desired a gift, but I desired fruit that I may abound to your account. But I have all, and abound, I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odor of sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. You see the context now? Here is a church that's been generous to Paul, not once, twice. He said, you know, when I, he points that out. Then he says to them, you know, I'm not telling you this because I, I, I want, you know, I've learned to be in content. But then he says, but God will supply your needs. It's in the context of a church that is uh, focused on missions and helping missionary support. It's out of that that you get this this particular passage that God. So we sometimes rip the passage out of it out of the context. You know, not every Christian going to God's going to supply every need. Quite frankly, it has to do in the context of generosity, because you have been giving and helping in the ministry. God says, Paul said, now God will supply your needs because you're supplying the needs of others. God will supply your needs. We gotta sometimes. <laughs> that's the danger of just taking a, a passage out of context and applying it to. Everybody, when into actual fact, is referring to generous Christians uh, who are involved in the Lord's work. Let me mention another one quickly. Mark chapter 15, verse 25. I think we all know this one. Mark 15 and verse 25 reads as follows. And it was the third hour, and they crucified him. Mark 15? Mark 15, 25. Um, I have the wrong reference. Anyhow, it's a passage there where... um, well, let's look at uh, Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. Yeah, I'll give it a reference. This is the, the prayer there in Matthew chapter 6, the large prayer. Um, Starting in verse 5, okay. And when thou prayest, yeah, yeah. thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, mm-hmm. for they love to pray standing in synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. Uh, I want you to look at the... Uh, verse 12. Look at verse 12. Verse 12 says, And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Correct. Uh, what I'm trying to point out here, another thing that hinders uh, God answering our prayer and responding to us is what I call an unforgiving spirit. Um, uh, there are times when we hold grudges uh, against someone and uh, we somehow feel that we get some kind of gratification over holy malice and we got to understand that God has said that he forgives us on the basis of we forgiving others. As a matter of fact I would say this uh, without being absolute in the matter I think it's very hard for a person to have known true forgiveness and not be willing to forgive See? and that is where I think that uh, sometimes uh, I have 
actually heard somebody <laughs> said this. I'm not, I, I don't go to that extent. That if you can't forgive, you'll never be forgiven, quite frankly. But the point is, if you've experienced the forgiveness of God, you know that you were not forgiven on your merits. You're not forgiven on the basis of your good works or anything you can do. It's out of grace. And you also know that you're forgiven in spite of all your repeated offenses against God. He still forgives you once you confess, right? Then uh, God said, but if I'm doing this for you, how do you not reciprocate? And I do feel that people who have an unforgiving spirit, will find that they're praying, but somehow they know they're not getting through because an unforgiving spirit hinders uh, access to the throne and uh, halts God's capacity to respond as he should. So an unforgiving spirit is another factor that needs to be taken in mind when it comes to... How would you respond to the listener who says, but Pastor, you're taking God's word too literally? Well, I can't help but take the Bible literally. Uh, that's the only way to interpret the Bible. Uh, we, we do know that there are figurative expressions. Are there are times when there are passages that are allegorical, or there's a parable, or an analogy. And just like any other book you're reading uh, that has different genres of literature and have different uh, um, uh, literary devices, you interpret it according to what is there. But the Bible is to be taken literally, except where there's a very clear indication that it is, as I mentioned, figurative, and there are passages like that. But generally speaking, uh, what is called the historical grammatical method is the proper method of interpreting the Bible. Uh, the other method is the allegorical method that tries to read things in the Bible that are not there. That is totally a false interpretation, and that's a false hermeneutic. Pastor, we have a question that has come in from a listener in Antigua. Can you please explain prayer in the following passages? 2 Kings chapter 19, verses 15 to 19 says, And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord God of Israel, which dwellest between the cherubims, thou art the God, even thou alone, of all kingdoms of the earth, thou hast made heaven and earth. Lord, bow down thine ear and hear, Open, Lord, thine eyes, and see, and hear the words of Sennacherib, which hath sent him to reproach the living God. Of truth, Lord, the kings of Assyria have destroyed the nations and their lands, and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were no gods. But the work of men's hands, wood and stone, therefore have they destroyed them. And verse 19 now therefore, O Lord our God, I beseech thee, save thou out of his hand, save thou us out of his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that thou art the Lord God, even thou only. Well, I think that prayer is pretty straightforward. You've got Sennacherib, who was a Syrian king, who is, I think, uh, I'm, I'm speaking under correction here, but I think he said that the Israel's God was a God of the mountains, but not uh, not the God of the valleys or something like that. God of the, valleys, not the hills, vice versa. So he is actually taunting God. And um, um, he's praying now. Uh, it's God's praying. He's asking God to intervene. You notice he starts with adoration. It's almost like buttering up God and telling God how great he is. Uh, I think that prayer should always start with God, never with us. Even when you look at the Lord's Prayer, you always focus on God first before we even make any kind of petitions. So first of all, he recognized God for who he is. He's creator, whatever it is. He's, he's adoring God for who he is. Then 
he brings the complaint against this king uh, who is coming against him and this king has been able to destroy all the other people's gods etc etc and then he comes with the petition and saying god you know we want you to intervene and we want you to save us from this this thing. and the reason for it is for god's glory that all the nations around might know what a glorious God you are. It's not a selfish prayer. Of course, they want deliverance, but the ultimate goal is that God would get glory out of this. That's what real true prayer is about there. So I think that's a classic example of the Old Testament model of the pattern of prayer. You start with God, you bring your requests, and then you... You, you complete it by asking for his glory to be accomplished. And you'll find that that pattern basically is what our Lord tells us in Matthew chapter 6, how to go to prayer. But it always starts with him, then our needs. As a matter of fact, it's, 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 uh, you'll find that it talks with them, it starts with God, uh, others, and then you, you come to yourself basically. But that's a good pattern. I think it's a very good prayer, but it illustrates how we should go about praying and uh, that God's glory ultimately is the goal of all prayer. Can that be taken to an extreme, though? Because I remember in my younger days seeing some, reading some of those prayers and thinking it's almost as if it could be interpreted that someone was trying to manipulate God into saying, if you're really this powerful, you're going to do this. But there's nothing wrong in God. Uh, look, God deserves praise. God wants prayers, okay? Uh, praise. So there's nothing wrong. You read all the great prayers. Nehemiah, you read uh, Solomon's prayer. They always start bigging up God, reminding God. Uh, and I would say uh, glorifying God, adoring God for who He is. Uh, and you'll find that they will remind God of what He did in the past, how He took care of Israel. Uh, so I don't see anything at all in when we begin the prayer to just... The problem with us is that we rush into God's presence forgetting who He is, hmm. right? It's like intruding. We're like, we're like a child who that daddy is doing something quite seriously, and we just feel we have right to just burst into the door, and He must put down everything. No, 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 no. To get ourselves in the right frame of mind, it requires of us spending some time thinking through who God is and... Uh, I would say reminding him, but uh, adoring him, you know, and uh, and God loves that. Uh, this is just the highest thing that we can do is exalt the being of God. Uh, he's the highest good, quite frankly, well, and that's the biblical model. I think we do too less of that uh, than than we should. It's possible that we can get into a rote form of prayer, but I, you'll find that when our, we deal with Matthew chapter six, how to pray. Uh, the pattern, pray after this manner. This is the model. Uh, he's saying that whenever you are going to prayer, this is a thought pattern that should govern your way of thinking when you come to prayer. And it always starts with God before I begin to talk about my needs and the needs of others. It has to talk, start with God. A second part to that question from the listener in Antigua. Can you please explain prayer in the following passage? The next passage is John seventeen seventeen. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Well, it's praying for the believer. And the word sanctify means really to make holy, to separate the believer. And he's praying that the Lord would use his word uh, uh, to help the believer in his life to become more sanctified, to become more holy. 
uh, that's a given. And, and by the way, David himself said, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might want Not sin against. So even in the Old Testament, the word was the instrument that would be used to restrain sin in a person's life. And of course, if we walk and order ourselves, he said, my, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, a, a light unto my path, right? And a light on my path. In other words, it gives light how to walk in the ways of God. So that prayer is a legitimate prayer. Lord, as use your word to sanctify your people, to make your people more holy, to walk in your ways. I think that's the uh, very, very clear uh, uh, intention of what our Lord was praying for. And two more passages to have you explain prayer would be the Nehemiah 9 and the Daniel chapter 9 in that's reference to... Yeah, yeah well, we, we talked about that already. Uh, we'll deal with that more exhaustively. I want to go to especially Daniel 9 next week, but I don't want to bypass uh, because I want to I go to, in, in both cases, what the prayer constituted, what was the nature of the prayer. That's what I want to do there. So it gives us an idea of the pattern of what, what went on. But I'll, I'll deal with that more exhaustively uh, next week. Thank you to the individual who sent in that question. Pastor, we have another WhatsApp question from Antigua. Good evening. I'm a bit confused about the Trinity. Is the Trinity a directive specifically from God? And is there any direct passage to say God is three parts? Also, why was there such a huge debate about whether the Trinity is true or not in the third century when it was established? Who is Tertullian? Tertullian, Uh yes, thank you. Look, uh, look, the, the, the thing is this. The doctrine of the Trinity is a revelation that God has given to us in His Word. And God has progressively been unfolding His character and His nature. When we come to the Old Testament, we learn from the very beginning there's a plurality in the Godhead. In the beginning, God. The word is Elohim, it's plural. It could actually be translated gods if you wanted to, but it has a singular verb. So it's a, it's like a what you might call a, um, a compound noun, a plural noun, but a singular verb, like the word family. Uh, family it means it has more than one, but yet the family is, right? You don't say the family are, right? right? So the idea, the, that idea is inherent there. And then let us make man in our own image. So there's a plurality there again. And then we're told that God made man in, in the image of God, singular. So there's an there's a element there where there is some plurality, but yet there's a unity within the Godhead. Then we come through the Old Testament, <clears throat> And we discover other places who will go for us. Uh, Isaiah, who's this us? Okay, so that that same concept, plurality. Then we discover that God has a son that he's going to send. Then we discover that uh, God the Spirit created the earth in, in the Old Testament as well. And so we, we now have a little, we're not too sure what does this mean. You've got this plurality within the Godhead, there's reference to a son, there's reference to the Spirit, but what does that all mean? It's only when we come to the New Testament that we have the fullness of revelation about this whole concept of the Trinity. We learn, for example, that there's God the Father, nobody disputes that, but we also learn there's someone called God the Son. As a matter of fact, Philippians uh, tells us that he did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, but made himself of no reputation. So here we got equality with God. We learn also in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's not the Father, but he's called God at the same time. What does all of this mean? And then we come to Acts chapter 5, and we discover when um, the Nass and Sapphira lied to the, the uh, lied there, uh, he said, you've lied 
to the Holy Spirit, you've lied to God. So the Holy Spirit is called God as well. So here you got it. The Father is called God. The Son is called God. And the Holy Spirit is called God. The church had to decide what does that mean. And the conclusion was reached that we cannot totally explain in um, exhaustive, exhaustively the Godhead. But we know that within the Godhead, you've got the Father, you've got the Son, you've got the Holy Spirit. There are three persons, but yet they have one nature. In other words, whatever makes God the Father, God in terms of His character and His attributes, makes the Son with the same character and the same attributes, and makes the Spirit. And we can go through, if we had a study, to show you that what we what constitutes the character of the attributes of God, you find that the Holy Spirit has those attributes, the Son has those attributes, and the and the Father has those attributes. The other thing is this. If we are to worship God and God alone, when we come to the worship which people worshiping Jesus, that's a serious error because how could he accept worship if we're to worship God alone. Did not Thomas also say to Jesus, my Lord and my God? In other words, it is not something that the church pulled out of a hat. The church looked at the biblical teaching and the revelation of this truth, and the best way they could express it was that there's a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all called God, all have the same attributes, all have the same nature, but they are distinct. Because the Father sends the Son, uh, the Father and the Son sends the Spirit. At His baptism, the Father speaks. The Holy Spirit comes in the form of a dove. The Son is baptized. There are three distinct persons within the Godhead. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the, 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 the Son is not the Father. Neither the Spirit the Father. There are three distinct persons within the Godhead. That's a doctrine we've looked at before, and perhaps Nathan can tell you where you can get that online for more details on that matter. Pastor, we have a caller calling from Antigua. Thank you for calling, and go ahead with your question, please. Hello. If you'd like to make a call. Sorry, we somehow got disconnected. If you would like to call back, please do, and we will put you on the air as soon as you call back. Yes, we have discussed the Trinity, and I will look up the specifics of that particular episode and get it to you here in the very near future. But until we do, Pastor, we have another uh I have another question in relation to prayer. Have you shared everything as far as the hindrances? No, uh, uh, no. Okay, and what other hindrances? Okay, look at uh, 1 Peter 3, verse 7. 1 Peter, chapter 3, and verse 7 says, Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife, as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. That last phrase, uh, I must say, is not necessarily always kept along with the first half of that verse. Yeah, but it is connected with the verse. What he's talking about, an an, an unhappy marital relationship. Hmm. Uh, You know, in the plainest and simplest words, we're told that a wrong relationship within the marriage could actually be a hindrance to prayer. And uh, if a husband and wife are not fulfilling their marital duties to each other, uh, it can lead to the fact that God uh, 
w- refuses to uh, answer that that particular prayer. This is not something that we normally are prepared to face or to deal with. But you know, if prayer is about a relationship between us and God, you don't you think God should be concerned about our relationship within the most intimate relationship between ourselves and our wives? So we got to understand that if we have an unhappy marital relationship and we're having problems, maybe the husband is unkind or harsh or brutal or insensitive, maybe the wife is too critical or too controlling or too content, uh, too content, uh, contentless, and uh, too complaining or neglecting whatever it is. Um, and I don't want to, there are other areas that we can talk about that we can't discuss, but there are things like intimacy that it could interfere with marriage, communication, and finances. Those kind of things could cause problems. Thank you for calling, and go ahead with your question, please. Are not fulfilling their marital duties to each other. If you can turn your radio down for us, please, and I'll put you back on the air in just a moment. I can't say that that's something when you hear people preaching about prayer, you usually don't hear uh, the context pastor of the marital relationship affecting how your prayers are answered. Yeah, because it's embarrassing. Yeah. And, the, and the reality is that I think when you think, when you will, even within the Christian family, it is really a great barrier that we're not prepared to face, and very few people really address the issue. Why did God allow these embarrassing things to be put in Scripture? Well, to show us our depravity, for sure, and to show us that we really need to deal with Him and, and depend upon Him on a daily, regular basis. You know, it, it, I don't think God just uh, says these things for us to feel bad, but to let us know that we are so entirely corrupt in our inner nature that apart from Him, we can do nothing. We are so self-sufficient that we've forgotten who we really are. And when, only when God probes into our heart to really bring these things to our attention that we cry, Oh, me. And we recognize our really need for a very close relationship with Christ and to keep uh, connected to Him. Pastor, we have a caller from Antigua. Thank you for calling, and go ahead with your question, please. All right, I'll ask you to call back, uh, and if you can, please have your radio turned down so that we can... Uh, communicate clearly with you. We would be glad to answer your question live. Yeah, let me on the give air. you another one quickly, then Nathan. Look at James chapter one, verse five to seven. One of my favorite books in the Bible, James chapter one, verse five to seven. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. And verse 7 says, For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. So what I would say here, an unbelieving heart is not just praying words, but do we really have a believing heart? This is one of the great conditions of prayer uh, that you'll find in Scripture. Um, if you look at Mark eleven twenty four, you see that uh, that is emphasized the need for have, having faith if we really want our prayers to be answered. Give me that reference again. Mark eleven twenty four. Mark eleven twenty four says the following. Therefore I say unto you, what things soever ye desire... When ye pray, believe that ye receive them, and ye shall receive them. Notice the condition there is the fact that um, you, you should have faith. Look at Matthew twelve twenty two. Matthew 12 and verse number 22 says, 
Then was brought unto him one possessed with a devil blind and dumb, and he healed him insomuch that the blind and dumb both spoke and saw. That's it. That's twelve twenty-two. Uh, Matthew twelve twenty-two. Okay, I've got a, some my reference there is um, a little bit skewed. Um, one other reference then. Look at Hebrews chapter eleven verse one. I think we all know that. Hebrews eleven and verse one. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Verse two. For by it the elders obtained a good report. Continue reading. For without faith, through I, want, I want to get that first. Uh, through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen were not made which do appear. By faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead yet speaketh. By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found, because God was translated him. For before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Okay, I'm looking for the reference where I said, without faith is impossible to please God. Okay, that's the next verse. Okay, uh, Hebrews 11, yeah. 6 says, But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of him that diligently seeks Yeah, there it is. You've got to believe that he is and that he is a rewarder. Now he's going to answer prayer. It requires faith. So, yes, go ahead. Yes, Pastor, we have a caller from Antigua. Thank you for calling. And go ahead with your question, please. Listen, you listen to me? Yes. Pastor Murphy, this is Bill O'Reilly from Matthews Road. Oh, how are you doing, sir? Uh, not bad, my brother. Yes. I was, fi- I was, I was, I was finding out the way how Ezekiel prayed, uh-huh. the way how Daniel prayed when he interpreted that dream, uh-huh. the way how Nehemiah prayed. When he was building the wall, uh-huh. and John chapter 17, when Jesus prayed. That is the way for us to pray. Yeah. Well, uh, we, we are coming to the pattern for us that is set before us uh, by our Lord himself in uh, Matthew chapter 6. We'll come to that. What's the pattern to no, pray? Matthew chapter 17. No, I'm talking Matthew chapter 6. We'll come to that when we talk what's called the Lord's Prayer or the Believer's Prayer. How no, the believers should pray. We'll no, come to that. How God manage how Christ teach us to pray and how he put over his spirit to the Father. Right. We, we're going to we're gonna deal with that more extensively. Uh, but I agree with you that the Old Testament sets a pattern. And you'll find that in, in Matthew chapter 6, when our Lord is talking about prayer, uh, he, he actually gives us almost the same type of pattern. But he tells us exactly how to go about praying. Uh, and we'll deal with that. I can't deal with that tonight, but I intend to deal with that uh, next week. Thank you for calling. We appreciate your call, and we appreciate you listening to That's Truth and continuing to encourage others to listen to That's Truth also. Pastor, a WhatsApp question that has come from the Southern Caribbean. Good night. If God created the universe, who created God? If somebody created God, that person would be God. So uh, it is a, a, a question that um, God always existed. Um, God is the ultimate. Um, there is no being other than God. So the, the there's no answer to that that God is eternal, basically. Uh, that is the revelation of Scripture. That is, some being have to create all of this. It just could never happen. And that being has to be an intelligent being. And that... Um, being has to be greater than the effect of what is created 
And that's where we learn that there's an ultimate eternal God that exists. That's a choice that people have to make. You either accept the revelation that's given in Scripture or you refute it. But the actual fact is um, we just go by what is revealed in Scripture, not only in uh, the written word and the spoken word of Lord Jesus Christ, but also in the actual physical word itself. The material word, we can see the hand of a being that is far superior to anything that exists, and that being has to be eternal. So whatever is the eternal being that creates all of this, that is the eternal God. For the listener who asked earlier in the program about the Trinity, and I told you I was going to get you the information about previous episodes on the topic of the Trinity, I apologize. I got uh, focused on other things, but here's the information. You can go to our website, www.radiolighthouse.org. Scroll down to the second large photo that you see. It's going to be a photo of a microphone. And right in the center of the photo is, right in the center of your screen, is a circle that says podcast. Click on that, and then you're going to see a link for That's Truth podcast archive. Click on that, and then you can go to episode 116 and 117. And in those episodes, Pastor very clearly explains what the Bible teaches about the Trinity and why it's important that we believe in the Trinity as it's taught in Scripture. Again, episode 116 and 117. And if you are interested in another topic, maybe you're not even sure if we have discussed it, you can go to that same archive and you can search for topics. We have a quite a list of resources there. There's been topics of narcissism, crime and punishment, slavery in the Bible, what is taught, baptism, Uh, dealing with anxiety, something that I think all of us to some degree have dealt with over the last year and a half since we've been in this whole situation with COVID and the ensuing protocols. There's a whole 18-part series, 18 weeks on Bible prophecy and specifically on chapters in the Scripture that talk about Bible prophecy. There is material about demonology, Maybe you're struggling with pornography or other addictions. There are weeks that we spent, episodes that were spent discussing those particular topics, and we hope and pray that that material will be useful to you, and also not only a good resource for you, but also to be able to share with friends, with family, maybe even with coworkers that have some difficult questions, and as you seek to answer them from Scripture as is taught in the book of Peter. Pastor, any other hindrances that you'd like to bring to our attention that would be hindering our prayers? Uh, I think thus, what I gave you is a, a good summary. The unholy motives, unconfessed sin, untoppled idols, uncompassionate heart, unforgiving spirit, unhappy mortal relationship, an unbelieving heart. There may be others that if you search the scriptures, but I think those are substantially the, the core that explains why uh, our prayers are not answered. That's actually quite a comprehensive list, and when you think about it, quite a few things we've got to make sure that we have right before we have a a clear prayer communication with God. It's clear that the Bible identifies several causes of unanswered prayer, and you've been talking about that throughout this episode, but does it also give us any insight into 
how to get our prayers answered. I guess that'd be the positive way of asking that. Are there any prerequisites of getting our prayers answered? Yeah, there definitely. And I, I think uh, I mentioned, first of all, uh, sometime go to protocol, quite frankly. If we want our prayers answered, we go to the Father in the name of the Son with the help of the Holy Spirit. Without that process, uh, we will never be um, having our prayer answered. But there are other things in the scriptures that uh, tell us that if we want to be successful in our prayer, uh, there are certain conditions that we need to meet. One of those, right off the bat, Nathan, is sincerity. If we're coming to God, we must be very sincere. Look at Job uh, sixteen seventeen for just a moment. Job sixteen seventeen says, "Not for any injustice in mine hands, also my prayer is pure." Again. Um, in his coming to, to the Lord, he's having a, a sincere heart, a pure heart, uh, and uh, clearly he's using that as a basis uh, to entreat God to answer his prayer. Look at Psalm 145 and verse 18. Psalm 145 and verse, verse 18. 18 says, The Lord is nigh unto all them that call upon him, to all that call upon him in truth. In truth, again. And the idea is that you're calling to him uh, on the basis of being sincere in your truth. Also, look at Matthew 6, 5. This is just a composite of verses that convey the idea of sincerity in our prayer. And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you. 23, 23 and 24. John four <clears throat> twenty three and 24. But the hour cometh, and now is... When the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. <clears throat> God is a spirit, and they that worship <clears throat> him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Again, in sincerity and in truth is one of the basic <clears throat> fundamental requirements <clears throat> of prayer. And I think we all can um, tacitly endorse that because we ourselves desire sincerity when we're dealing with people in a personal relationship. So that is one of the conditionalities of getting your prayer answered, uh, praying to God in sincerity. The other one I would suggest to you, number two, is reverence. Uh, look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28 and 29. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 12, 28 and 29 says, Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Right, so it's talking about the fact that we must have reverence when we're dealing with God because of who He is. Matthew 6 9 is another uh, that gives the same inference to the idea that we must come to Him with reverence. After this manner, therefore, pray ye, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Again, the idea is that when you come into God, you don't rush into God's presence. You've got to acknowledge who He is and the fact that He is the Father, and you treat Him with respect, just that you treat your, your parent with respect, you respect God when you come into Him with reverence. And then Ecclesiastes 5.2 
it's a, another reference there that I would use to convey this idea that we must have a reverential approach when we come to God. Ecclesiastes 5.2 five, two. Two. Be not rash with thy mouth, and let thine heart be hasty to utter, and let not thine heart be hasty to utter any other thing before God, for God is in heaven, and thou upon earth, therefore let thy words be few. Again, the idea of rashness. You, you, when you're a rash person, just rush into this, this total irreverence, quite frankly. And then he said, you know, watch what you're saying when you come before God. You, you, you've got to understand that you, God is in heaven, you're on earth. And even in the Lord's Prayer, what we call the, the believer's prayer, he said, our Father which is in heaven, he's our Father. But we must never forget the distance between us. We're on earth, he's in heaven. And we must always maintain that idea. The, I, I know that we call him Abba Father, Daddy, 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 but we still respect our parents. We don't rush into him without even contemplating what we're going to do. We're going to make a request. We have a distinct respect for our parents and we should have a distinct respect for God when we're coming to prayer. In the last 30 seconds, does that mean that I have to be fearful when I go before God? Can I go before Him in confidence? I didn't say fearful. I said reverential. They're two different things altogether. We don't cower when we come before God, but we show the proper respect, the proper protocol, uh, the decency of recognizing who He is when we come to Him. You're confident that God hears your prayers and answers your prayers? Of course. And I think though there are many people who could give testimony to that fact that God answers prayer. Thank you for listening to That's Truth, and be sure that you stay tuned next week as we continue this topic. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's Truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth, Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kHz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.